Well, hello everyone. I'm Tyler Cressman. Welcome to this week's Cressman Conversation. The topic for the week is going to be about the war in Afghanistan. Now, this has been in the news a lot this week due to some stuff involving Donald Trump and our troops in the Middle East. So we're going to answer some important questions today. The biggest one being probably, why the hell are we in Afghanistan? What are we doing? What's the point of this war? That is a question I feel like a lot of people do not know the answers to. We're going to go over that today. That's basically where we're going to start. But in order to understand what's going on today, we have to do a brief history lesson. So that's where we're going to start today. We're going to do a brief history of Afghanistan. So get ready to have some fun. We want to talk about why are we at war in Afghanistan? Well, unfortunately, we're going to only have, we're only going to be able to go back a few decades because if we were going to try and talk about the history of war in Afghanistan, I would have written 500 pages today because the history of that country is one of war for a very, 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 very long time. But we'll go back to the modern problem today. So why, why is there war in Afghanistan today? Well, Afghanistan has been fighting a civil war since the 70s. There has been issues in that country for decades longer than I've been alive. They've been fighting a, a war that has not stopped. And it started as a civil war in Afghanistan. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, that civil war was exacerbated by the Soviet Union and the United States and its allies. We fought, we fought a proxy war in Afghanistan. The government was backed by the Soviet Union and funded by them, supplied weapons by them. And the United States supplied training and weapons and finances to the rebel forces that were fighting the government in an attempt to stop Soviet influence in the Middle East. That basically was why we did it. So in the process of doing this, we the CIA wound up training a lot of the people who would later become our ideological enemies, which was no good, including Osama bin Laden. But we fight this we fight this proxy war in the Middle East in the late 70s, early 80s. And then you have the Soviet Union that collapses. And when the Soviet Union collapses, the government that the main supporter of, which was the Soviet Union, has no support anymore. They have no finances. And the government then collapses in Afghanistan. And so what happens in the country in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, is you have a rise in what could be called warlordism in Afghanistan. Basically, the country was divided into sections and the strong man in each section took control of his own territory. So you have this fragmented country that was basically controlled by strongmen, whoever happened to be in that region. So you have this warlordism that arises in this is around 1992 uh, with the collapse of the government. And then you have basically a non-existing government that is in Afghanistan in the early to mid-90s. So what happens during this time is that the United States we lose interest. The world loses interest in Afghanistan at this point. We were fighting a war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union no longer exists. We won that war. And so the 
world loses interest. The United States has no, we have no involvement in, I shouldn't say no involvement. We have very, very little involvement in Afghanistan in the early part of the 90s. We're not, there's no, according to most people at the time, there's no reason for the United States to be involved in that area of the Middle East. There are other more important areas in the early 90s we were concerned about. So we're, we're not doing anything. And then what happens is in an attempt to unify the country, in an attempt to overcome this warlord mentality that has taken hold, Muhammad Omar forms the Taliban. And the Taliban were a group of fundamentalists who basically wanted to overcome warlordism by imposing their own very strict form of Sharia law throughout the country. So the Taliban are initially very successful. They start conquering parts of Afghanistan. There are some setbacks here and there, but ultimately they become the de facto rulers of Afghanistan, or at least large swaths of it. And this was important because, in the, again, we, weren't, we didn't care about the Taliban in the early to mid-90s. We didn't care at all. We didn't really care until 1998. And in 1998, the U.S. Embassy in Kenya is bombed. 200 people are killed. And it, it wakes the U.S. up to the fact that we have an ideological enemy that we didn't realize was going to attack us. Not, not on this scale. And so it, it starts this thing under Clinton where we, we link the embassy bombings in 1998 to Osama bin Laden. And we find out that Osama bin Laden is being given protection by the Taliban. Uh, he, he had formed a group called Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, excuse me, and then, uh, or I guess both pronunciations you hear all the time. I believe it is actually Al-Qaeda, not Al-Qaeda, but I don't 100% actually know the answer to that. The, um, but, he, but he had formed this group called Al-Qaeda and was implementing a form of fundamental jihadism against the U.S., we just didn't know it until the bombing in 1998. Maybe had some inklings of it, but we didn't really know. So in 1998, after the bombings, we become very interested in Afghanistan because we find out that between Pakistan and Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden is hiding out and we, we want him. We say he's responsible for the deaths of 200 people at a U.S. embassy and we want this person. He's on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list at this point. And the Taliban basically say, yeah, no, we don't really know where he is. We don't know what's going on. And uh, we're not going to give him to you because, you know, he's not part of our group. He's not even in the Taliban. He's part of Al-Qaeda. <clears throat> and then this goes on. We're, we're going back and forth with them. At certain points, it seems like they're, they might hand bin Laden over. Then they don't. And this is basically all a delaying tactic. And this goes on for years. We, we fight this sort of, we had troops, not troops, but sort of clandestine operators in Afghanistan in the late 90s after the embassy bombing with a, a mission to kill or capture bin Laden in the country. So we knew he was, we knew we had these enemies. We just didn't realize the extent until they were already established. And this is the late 90s at this point. And we, we go on, we say, okay, well, we had this big terrorist attack in Kenya. All right. And we, and we start, you saw President Clinton sort of ramp up the pressure 
on Afghanistan and Pakistan, but he doesn't realize how bad this problem is. No one does. No one, no one really does. Or the people who do, they don't get to the opportunity to make enough noise that let everyone else know how deadly this is. And then the world wakes up. The world wakes up a few years later, September 11, 2001, when 3,000 Americans are killed in the deadliest terror attack on U.S. soil. And this, this wakes the entire world up because the United States is the leader of the free world. We are the, we're number one, and we were, an atrocity was committed on our soil. And all the people around the world who support the U.S., watched this and had our back when we said we know who did this and we launch a war we launch a war against fundamentalism in the middle east now we go after saddam hussein in iraq and we invade afghanistan to fight the taliban now looking back on at history there are a lot of things you can say about the war in iraq justified not justified that's not what we're going into today. What we will say, what I will say just briefly, is that Saddam Hussein was one of the most evil figures of the last century. So him being killed, I have no issues with. Like he's a he is one of the most evil people who existed. So the war in Iraq is one thing, but that's not what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on the war in Afghanistan. We go to war in Afghanistan in two thousand. And one. We invaded in October of 2001. We did this to fight the Taliban who were giving cover to Al-Qaeda within their country. We knew this. We knew that they were, they were covering the tracks of bin Laden and his associates, the people who attacked us on 9-11. You saw the Democratic debates. I think it was either, I think it was the second one, possibly the first one, uh, where Tulsi Gabbard got in this exchange where she said something along the lines of, the Taliban didn't attack us on 9-11 as if that is the most important thing in the world, what they were calling themselves. The Taliban may as well have attacked us on 9-11. Not, not just because they share the beliefs with Al-Qaeda, but because they were helping Al-Qaeda. And it's as though they're not, they're not two separate entities entirely. They're two organizations with two distinct leadership and two distinct ways that they operate within their countries, but they're not... They were helping each other. So we go to war in Afghanistan because we want bin Laden and we know that the Taliban is giving cover to him within their country. So this is October 2001 when we invade. Now we basically defeat the Taliban, their hold on the country by December. We, we roll over them in two months. And... The United States is the greatest military force ever in the history of the world. The Taliban in a conventional war just had absolutely no hope. So they're beat in a month and a half. It's not, it's not even close how that bit of the war went. They just can't, they couldn't compete whatsoever. And this, so this is the war in, in that sense of like who controls the country is over in two months. But then we have been fighting for 18 years in Afghanistan, a war against insurgency. And the problem is that a war against insurgency is damn near impossible to win because there's not, they don't wear a uniform and you're not fighting them with the goal of controlling the country. We already control the country. The problem is, is that you just, you're fighting suicide bombers and ambush attacks and 
you know, bombs on the side of the road and it becomes a little bit different. And this, this goes on, this has gone on for 18 years, but this, this is what we were doing in Afghanistan until 2011. 2011 comes around and this is a, another great day in history. We kill Osama bin Laden. I had said a couple weeks ago on the program that you shouldn't celebrate the deaths of human beings. I, I think that that's, there's something not right about that. Now, there are very few exceptions to that rule, and congratulations to Osama bin Laden. You are an exception to that rule. Every person on the world should celebrate the death of Osama bin Laden. He was an evil, terrible human being. And we killed him in 2011. And this is around the time, it's been 10 years that we've been fighting a war in the Middle East. And people have lost their taste for it. They don't understand what we're doing in Afghanistan, Iraq. They don't understand what's happening in the Middle East, why there's so many troops there, what's going on, what is the goal of the war. And you see this, but public opinion has turned at this point. They say, this is, you know, we're just wasting resources. We're wasting money. We're wasting American lives in the Middle East. And we start the drawdown. Now, this in Iraq, we pull out of Iraq in 2011. And what do we see happen in Iraq in 2011? We see the rise of ISIS and the forming of an, a caliphate in the Middle East. And then our biggest ideological enemy becomes ISIS, and we have to fight a war against ISIS. We have to re-enter Iraq three years later to fight ISIS in the country that we had just pulled troops out of. And it, it is a, a difficult, tough war that we fight against ISIS. But that's, and that is what happened when we pulled out in 2011 from Iraq. So 2014 comes around, and again, because we're not talking about Iraq, we're not even talking about ISIS right now, we're talking about Afghanistan. So 2014 comes around and NATO pulls out of Afghanistan. We stopped combat operations operations in Afghanistan in 2014. We give control of the country back to the Afghan government and tell them to use their army to fight Taliban, who had mostly been wiped out in the country. They still are. They still exist, but they don't control the country anymore. That is controlled by the government. So the United States and NATO end combat operations in Afghanistan. What happens in Afghanistan? Almost immediately, the Taliban seize control of the country again. The, they control 70% of the country uh, a few years after we stop combat operations in Afghanistan because the Afghan government is ineffective. They are tribal. They, they, do, not, uh, they do not accomplish things. And the military is poorly trained. We train them, but it is not to the same standard that the U.S. military is trained. So what happens? The Taliban seize control of the country almost immediately. They control the country again like they did prior to the U.S. involvement in 2001. And it did not take them very long to do so. Uh, recently, the reason why we're talking about this today is because Donald Trump had planned a talk with the Taliban leaders at Camp David on the anniversary of 9-11. This is, this is so 
Ooh, ooh, ah, I find it just very exciting. This is so... Ah, I just, I can't even, I can't even put it into words how opposed to this I am. It is actually, it just, it actually upsets me that anyone in the White House, anyone in the government might think that this is appropriate. Uh, to, to bring the leaders of the Taliban to Camp David on the anniversary of 9-11. And he canceled the talks, uh, citing the fact that the Taliban took responsibility for some attacks that killed some American servicemen recently, as if they haven't been doing that for 18 years. The idea that the Taliban was going to somehow uh, come in good faith is just nonsense. And so this has been in the news. That's why we're doing this brief history of the war in Afghanistan, and then we're gonna now we're gonna talk about the problems with this idea. Donald Trump ran on a platform of pulling troops out of the Middle East, and so he's he's trying to follow through on a campaign platform. It's not a, an area of his campaign that I supported him with, but here here are the problems with negotiating with the Taliban to even invite them to peace talks in the first place. The Taliban do not respect our customs, and our laws. They do not care about an agreement with our country, a peace talk with our country. They do not care. Any, They are not good faith actors in the world. Any attempt at peace with the Taliban is a way for them to rebuild their strength so they can attack us in the future. It is not it is not a way to foster harmony in the world for the foreseeable future. That's not the way it goes. They are not good faith actors. They are just biding their time. Because a peace deal to people who believe, fundamentalists who believe in, and who actually believe in what they preach, a peace deal is just a brief moment in time. A, under uh, Islam has some very, 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 very distinct ways. I, I excuse me, not Islam. Islamism has some very distinct ways in which it operates, and one of them is you can make peace with your enemies, but that peace will always be temporary because that peace is just used as another means to build their strength, so that when they attack you in the future, they will destroy you. This is how the Taliban operate. This is the ideology that they operate on. So when Donald Trump calls the Taliban to Camp David to negotiate peace talks, what does peace with the Taliban look like? It doesn't look like anything that is sustainable, not in the long term. And so the, this is just a terrible thing. The Taliban, let's say we let's say Donald Trump had gone through with these talks or not Donald Trump, any of the Democratic candidates running for president, anyone running for office. This is the area where I have not found a single person who speaks very logically on this topic whatsoever. You listen to Donald Trump. He said, I'm going to pull troops out of Afghanistan. You, and you listen to Obama. Obama said, I'm going to pull troops out of Afghanistan. And what happened when Obama was in office? He increased the troop numbers in Afghanistan. Why? Because once you understand the problem, once you have people telling you, hey, here's the issue, you say, oh, we can't leave. And that's what Donald Trump has done. He's increased troops in Afghanistan, and now he wants, he wants to pull out. Just like everyone wants to pull out. You know, Elizabeth Warren said she wants to pull out immediately. No peace deal, no nothing. Bring the troops home. Pete, uh, Mayor Pete said we have to pull out 
Andrew Yang, we have to pull out. We're bad at rebuilding countries, he said. Any any Democratic can Tulsi Gabbard says we have to stop these needlessly expensive regime change wars in the Middle East. This line of thinking, and it's Democrat and Republican these days, this line of thinking is unsustainable. You cannot be educated on this subject and have these ideas. There's a problem here because nobody, no single person wants to put America's troops are the world's troops, in the in the case of NATO, in danger. We the last thing in the world that I want to see happen is for an American service member to be killed in Afghanistan. That's the last thing in the world that I would possibly want. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to put American lives in danger. Here is the problem: if you negotiate a peace deal with the Taliban, they take control of that country. What does that country look like? Why were we fighting there in the first place? Because they were giving cover to Al-Qaeda who attacked us and committed an atrocity on American soil. The uh, Al-Qaeda used to run terrorist training camps in the country of Afghanistan. And the Taliban did not do anything about it because they, in fact, they supported it. The Taliban... Al-Qaeda receives money from Pakistan. Pakistan receives money from Saudi Arabia. That is who funds the war against us. Saudi Arabia is not our ally. This is a side note. Saudi Arabia is not our ally. They are ideological enemies of ours, and they fund more terrorism around the world than anyone with the exception of possibly Iran. The idea that the Taliban if given control of Afghanistan, are going to do anything about this is nonsensical. They did not do anything about this in the 90s, and they did not do anything about this in the 2000s. The reason we invaded is because the Taliban refused to shut down al-Qaeda's training camps in their country. They refused to give us access to Osama bin Laden. They refused to allow inspectors to come and look at their, to, to verify whether or not people were being trained in jihad within their country. They, did not, they do not cooperate with us because they do not agree with us. They agree with bin Laden and his view of the world more than they agree with the U.S. and our view of the world. Now, the, the training camps in Afghanistan borders under the Taliban trained up to 20,000 people in jihad. They, the, the Mujahideen trained people to fight an ideological war throughout the world. Guns, bomb making, how to cause terror in civilian populations and how to fight a war of insurgency against a longer, a larger, stronger force. That is what happened in Afghanistan under the Taliban. And that's what's going to happen in the future. We act as though we can pull out. This is the this is the thing I always disagreed with, with a lot of libertarians, for example. And now you're seeing it with not only the Democrats, but the Republicans. You're seeing it from everyone. It used to be the Republicans who were the the called the warmongers. They always wanted to go fight someone. Donald Trump's not that way. Donald Trump wants to pull out of the Middle East. It's a terrible idea, and this is where the libertarian leanings of the right get it wrong. This is where Ron Paul got it wrong. This is where now everyone appears to get it wrong. We pulled out of the Middle East in 2011 
and what happened. This anything positive that we had done in the 10 years that we were in Iraq, any of the, the government that we had installed, the people who may have been better off, the schools that we built, anything that was done in Iraq in the 10 years that we were there were immediately wiped out by the rise of ISIS. We allowed, we filled, we, excuse me, we had a vacuum formed in the Middle East when the United States pulled back. And that vacuum is going to be filled by someone who is not our ally. That is what happened in Iraq with the rise of ISIS. And we, we had a more dangerous ideological enemy to contend with because we left and we did not just stay. We did not just stay in the Middle East, in that country. And the, people don't want to hear that. People don't want to hear that we're going to just have to stay in Afghanistan. We cannot pull out. Isolationism does not work at this point in time. These wars are costly. They cost resources. They cost money. They cost, um, unfortunately, more than anything, they cost American lives. But the people that we have in the Middle East right now, the soldiers that we have on the front lines who are defending our way of life, these heroes, if they are there in the Middle East, if they're not in Iraq, if they're not in Afghanistan, if we pull them out, if we bring them home, what happens in the Middle East does not stay in the Middle East. It comes here. It comes to our shore. It comes in the form of planes flying into our buildings. It comes in the form of bombs that will be blown up at our events. It is not, this war is not a conventional war. We don't have to worry about boats of people landing on our shores. But what we do have to worry about are people trained in the art of terror in a country like Afghanistan, who then implement that terror within our borders and around the world. Kenya is not the United States. 200 people were murdered in Kenya by Osama bin Laden in 1998. And it was with truck bombs. Now, do we want that in the United States? Do we want people we don't know from places we don't have a presence to attack us in a way that we are unprepared for again? Because that's what happened in 1998 and that's what happened in 2001. We weren't involved in an area of the world where we should have been involved and we were attacked because of it. That, not because of it, but we, were, uh, we allowed ourselves to be put in this position. And this is, this is what people don't understand. Nobody wants to be in the Middle East and fighting these wars. Nobody. I certainly don't. You don't want to see American servicemen killed in combat in Afghanistan. Nobody wants to see that. But if it's not a serviceman getting killed, it's going to be citizens of the United States. Our soldiers are invaluable. They deserve the utmost respect and admiration for the sacrifices that they make to keep our country safe. But there is a reason why they're in the Middle East and not here at a fort in the States. And that reason is to keep us safe. That is the entire job of the military. If the military is not in the Middle East, we are not safe.
that is the that is the end of the story. Any pullback we have in the Middle East is going to result in the loss of more life around the world. For every soldier that's killed in the Middle East, for every every tragedy that is suffered by our military, they stop ten times as much chaos being brought to the people of the world. 3,000 people were killed in a single day on 9-11. How many people have been killed in the 18 years we've been in the Middle East? Does anyone know the answer to that question? They are, it is, it is comparable to the amount killed in one day by terrorists on 9-11. So, and again, every one of those loss of life in the Middle East is a tragedy. Not only of U.S. servicemen, but of the innocent civilians who are caught in the crossfire by these ideological monsters. Uh, the Taliban are responsible for, the last thing I saw said, two-thirds of civilian deaths within the country of Afghanistan were caused by the Taliban. So every civilian caught in the crossfire, every war crime committed by the Taliban against our own people, it's a tragedy the entire way around, but it does not get better the United States pulled out of the country. You ask yourself, what were the biggest tragedies that happened over the course of the 20th century? And you ask yourself why they were allowed to happen. And the answer is obvious. The answer is actually, it is a lack of American presence is the reason that those tragedies happened. Whether this is America refusing to get involved at the beginning of World War II, waiting to be attacked before we entered the war and you know allowing 6 million Jews and over the course of the war 80 million people to be killed how many people would have been saved had the United States joined with the allied forces at the beginning of the war i don't know the answer to that question no one does but certainly it would have been a lot and what about more recently how about in, how about Bosnia? That's just an easy example. I'm from St. Louis. St. Louis has the second largest population of Bosnians outside of Bosnia. Why does the city have the second largest population of Bosnians outside of Bosnia? It is because refugees needed to come here to avoid a genocide in their own country. And why was that genocide allowed to happen? Because the United States didn't intervene. The UN, we went, we allowed the UN to do what it was supposed to do, which is prevent these things from happening. But it is a, a lack of backbone that allowed people to be massacred in that country. And it was the US not just saying, no, you don't get to commit genocide. Why? What about Darfur? Does anyone? think that if the United States had gotten involved, we could have prevented the people, uh, what amounted to hundreds of thousands of people being killed with machetes? Yeah, I think the United States should have had, should play a role on the world stage. We are the leaders of the world for good and bad. And everywhere that the United States goes is better off than when we don't go. It, it, everywhere the United States intervenes has more freedom 
and more peace than when we choose not to intervene. And this is, this is true throughout the history of the United States. Why is it that today we have thousands of troops in places like Germany and Japan and South Korea? We, we stopped fighting World War II in 1945. Why do we still have troops in Germany? Well, the answer is because we maintained a presence to help that society move forward to, uh, to foster peace and in that country. And now Germany is one of our closest allies in the world. The same can be said of Japan. Why do we have troops in Japan? We're not fighting a war in Japan. We haven't been for, what, 70 years? And you say like, okay, well, why don't we bring those troops home? Well, there's a reason why we don't. Our presence in the world is not imperialistic in nature. We keep our troops there because after these wars, we rebuilt those countries. We, we fostered peace and harmony by just maintaining a presence and saying, we're not going to leave you to the wolves. It is unfortunate that people don't understand. In Afghanistan, the goal is not nation building. The goal is not regime change. We're not trying to implement a puppet government. The goal is to keep the country in a state of controlled chaos. We have to keep the, we have to keep the ideological war from spreading beyond the borders of Afghanistan. That is why we have troops there. It's not, to, it's not because we believe there's going to be peace in the Middle East. There's not going to be peace in Afghanistan for the foreseeable future. We're not going to just all of a sudden one day wake up and everyone is going to be holding hands and singing Kumbaya. That's not why we have troops there. We have troops there for the same reason we have troops in, in Germany, in Japan, in Korea. It is because we have to attempt to not only win a war, but maintain a presence to let people know that we are there for you. Let the people of Afghanistan know that. You think the people of Afghanistan want the U.S. to leave, you are mistaken. The people in Iraq did not want the U.S. to leave because they knew what would happen when the U.S. left. And it was exactly what happened. And it's exactly what will happen if the U.S. has a drawdown in Afghanistan. If we pull our troops out, the world is less safe. We are less safe. And that is something that people just need to understand. We cannot be absent from the world stage because of money or because the loss of an American life is a tragedy. Yes, it is unfortunate, but it is also just untrue that we can pull our troops out. We can bring them home and there will not be consequences. Ask any general in the military if they think that pulling our troops out is a good idea. Not a single one of them said yes. No one said, oh, yes, we should leave Afghanistan. Everyone said, no, we have to stay. And the, the thing that people don't understand, the thing that the, the Democrats, I think that some of the people running for president understand this. But you, instead of pandering to the American electorate who don't understand why 
we are there and what we're doing and what the goal is, don't pander. Educate them. Let them know. You say, look, I know you don't want to spend money, what amounts to $3 trillion so far, on wars in the Middle East. I don't want to spend money on wars in the Middle East. I would much rather spend that money elsewhere. But if we don't spend that money, if we don't make these sacrifices, we aren't better off. The, the world is not better off. You are not better off. Again, it is, it is not an easy topic because people don't want, to, don't want to just say, yeah, we're going to be in Afghanistan for forever. And that's unfortunate. But we are not going to allow that country to descend into radicalism that knows no borders. That's been the problem of the last 20 years is we've realized we're fighting an ideological war and ideas don't stay neatly within the borders of a country. They spread, they can go anywhere. But if you allow, if you don't allow a stronghold for ideas to grow, you are better off at keeping those ideas in check. That is what we learned in the Middle East in the last 20 years. If any lessons are learned in the Middle East, it is that it is that you cannot allow safe havens for bad ideas. And that's what Afghanistan would become if we pull out. The Taliban will take control. They will reopen terrorist training camps. They will attempt, again, financed with Saudi Arabian money, they will attempt to spread their form of radicalism, their form of Wahhabism, the Mujahideen, the jihadists will not stay in Afghanistan. They will be trained. They will go throughout the world and they will increase. It will increase the amount of terror we see throughout the world. And it is, it's ugly. And it's, it's not a fun conversation to have. But if you believe in isolationism, you live in a world that is no longer tenable. We have invented we have invented the airplane. Those ideas don't stay there. We're not fighting an enemy who wears a uniform. We're fighting an idea. And that idea cannot be allowed to be given safe harbor and grow and spread. That is why we need to maintain troops in Afghanistan. That is what our foreign policy needs to be about. American interventionism is a good thing. It is an unfortunate thing, but it is a good thing. And so that, that basically is my opinion on Afghanistan, why we're there, why listening to every single person in the Democratic debate say, without a doubt, we're going to pull our troops out is disheartening. Why I was incredibly, oh, I was so upset when, this, when Donald Trump leaked about his peace talks with the Taliban. That, as you could tell by my extremely long pause earlier, I was at a loss of words. I could not believe anyone thought that was a good idea. Diplomacy is a tool that we use to avoid war. But it is not a tool that can be used with people who do not obey the same rules. It is not, diplomacy will not work with the Taliban. It will not. And when Donald Trump wants to talk about peace talks with the Taliban, it is. And, it, and on the anniversary of 9-11... It's just, oh, it's just disgusting. It's just, again, the optics are terrible. And especially as a PR guy, he should have been aware that the optics of that were not going to be good. 
and it just it is incredibly gross. So that's where we're gonna that's where we're gonna leave this this week. I hope that people really really consider what I'm saying here about why it's important America not be absent from the world stage. We have to be the leaders. We cannot pull back. We cannot abdicate our duty to the rest of the world and to ourselves. We can't do it. So that's basically where we're going to leave off with our talks about Afghanistan. This is a topic that is just not understood very well, unfortunately, by the average person. They don't understand why we're there, what we're doing. The goal is not clear. I understand that. It's just I hope you realize that the goal has never been to win the war. We won the war. We beat the Taliban. The problem is we're, we're now fighting a war against an ideology. And I hope people may understand that that distinction is very important. And if we leave, we lose. If we, pull, if we leave the country, any good we have done is, is immediately undone. So that's what we're gonna. That's how we're gonna leave that off. Um, we're gonna move on to some questions that I had. Uh, actually, we just, we just have one this week. This is actually um, an interesting one. Should we raise the social security cap? Now, this is, this is a good. This is a good question. I I have been talking about for a long time the idea that social security is not financially feasible. And one of the things that people say is that, well, what we could do is raise the social security cap. I'm actually, I'm for this. Um, I think that it would be fine. I, what I'd prefer to, uh, not to get into a giant thing about taxes, what I would prefer is we take our entire tax code and we scrap the entire thing and we implement a flat tax that we use to pay for most things. I think that your the amount that you make should just be taxed at a consistent level. So you get rid of the social security cap entirely, but you take social security as a percentage out of the percentage that you get from everyone. So 18% would be where I would set it. Um, I think I think it's uh, Milton Friedman, possibly Thomas Sowell, who came up with that number as to where. Uh, those are both economists from the University of Chicago. I think the 18% was the number that they came up with that said would be the most, the perfect number. Uh, and then you take you take your, so if you, as opposed to what the social security cap is now, which, ooh, I, forgive me for forgetting exactly. I think it's $120,000 maybe. So any, any, any earnings you make past $120,000 don't get taxed for social security, which is a, a relatively low thing. Uh, when we were talking about taxes, we had already gone all the ways in which the rich already pay for everything in this country. So raising the tax just means they pay for more stuff. Uh, but I don't understand necessarily why the cap is that low. I feel like it should be a, a bit higher. But again, I think I don't think that we should be taxed specifically for social security. I think everyone should be taxed at the same rate uh, for their income. And then all the other things that are taken out should just be kind of lumped in with that. 
but that that's kind of my opinion. Yeah, we can raise the Social Security cap, cap under our current system, and that will probably help, but it's not going to fix the, the deficit that we're running in Social Security. Because the problem is, is that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. Uh, and you need more people to fund it. And it's a pyramid scheme because we're using we're, the money you put into Social Security is not the money you get out of Social Security. The, the money that you put in funds people who are already receiving it. And then later you need people to fund you because we don't just have a giant bank of Social Security money. It does not. It's not real. Um, and so you need more people. So when as the birth rate has fallen less people pay into the system, we start running a, a, a deficit in our spending, and then we say we actually don't know how we're going to pay for this 10 years down the road. So yeah, raise the cap, it might provide a little buffer room, but it's not going to fix the system. And so it's, you know, it's a band-aid. It's not, not a fix. But uh, yeah, I do agree. We should raise it as since we you know we have to work within the current system we have so that's a good good question excellent question um and yeah i think we could raise it and it would help a little bit uh that's the only question we have this week we're going to move on we're going to do our book of the week now i was on vacation i don't know if any of you can tell it's kind of hard uh i was on vacation on a beach you can see here on the video i have the only place i got burned was apparently my hairline uh so i have this weird like you know, it looks like vitiligo right now, but yeah, it um, got a little burned on a beach in Puerto Rico. And I spent my few days in Puerto Rico reading a book, which was awesome. It's called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius is really one of the first philosopher kings. He wrote a book on stoicism, which was incredibly good. Uh, I would definitely, that is going to be my recommendation this week. I also recommend if you have the chance to read it on a beach in Puerto Rico. It makes it that much better. Um, so that's where we're going to leave it this week. I would I would love it if anyone has any questions to send me an email. Don't forget to like, subscribe. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts listening to this, go ahead and leave me a review. That really always helps. Uh, I appreciate every single one of you who's out there listening this week. And that's where we're... We're leaving it this week. I'm Tyler Cressman. I hope you guys have a fantastic week, and I will see you next Monday.